Welcome to the Imperfect Game Podcast. I'm Sean Melia. Today's soccer team, past and present, is Everton Football Club, and I've got Both on the other line. Both, are you ready to I, talk about Everton? Yeah, uh, this this one is again. I'm, I find myself saying, "Oh, this is really fun," but wow, this was uh, some some cool homework to do over the week that we had. Yeah, I I think um, this is we were saying before we got on here. This is definitely the team that's the most decorated of the of the six that we've looked at so far. Um, they have had uh, quite a history, and often I think have maybe a little bit of a little brother complex because of because of their their neighbors just up the road um, in Liverpool Football Club, but. Definitely some serious history, and uh, and and some frustration too. They've gotten they've had these, they've had these pockets of great success, um, especially in the '80s and more recently. And I think I think um, they've they've just they've had this really interesting long run of, of good of good soccer, and they are one of the the OGs of of English soccer. So let's just let's just get into it and. I'll go through some of the history and talk about the city a little bit um, because it's a city that's always I've been interested in it and it's got it's got a lot of its own um, stories to tell. So first, I just want to give a, a little bit of a sources shout out. So some of the things that I use just to kind of learn about Everton and Liverpool as a city, um, obviously Wikipedia. And if you are someone who uses Wikipedia a lot, whether you're a student or just someone who likes to read, uh, go and donate to Wikipedia. And, um, if you, if you toss them three bucks, it's a cup of coffee and it goes a long way in helping those website actually, uh, stay free for, for people. Um, another thing I did was I listened to the American toffee podcast, which, um, I listened to, they do a lot of re- game recaps, but I poked around and found an interview from maybe the f- early this fall, um, with a fellow named Rob Sloman, who is a director and producer and he just released a film called Everton Howard's Way, which is a documentary about the 1980, pretty much from 81 to 87 stretch of Everton um, soccer, which was many would say the the best stretch they've they uh, ever had. And and they were one of the best teams in all of Europe. And I watched that last night. and It was excellent. Um, some really good stories and clips. And I don't know if you remember um uh, it's their goalie Southall. Yeah. Yeah. Who is just like, I mean, he is, he's got to be like 280 pounds now. Um, just, uh, just a really got a, a ton of good stories from a lot of those guys. Um, so that's a good podcast to listen to. And then finally, toffeeweb.com had some, had some interesting, uh, kind of folklore about the club that I'll get into, uh, especially talking about the crest and their nickname, the toffees when we get to there. So the city of Liverpool, um, I pulled a quote from Wikipedia right away because it's always been one of those names as a city that I was <laughs> I was interested enough to wonder about, but not not interested enough to really look into it. So right. the name Liverpool, uh, I have a quote here from Wikipedia. Quote, the name comes from the old English lifer, meaning thick or muddy water and pole, meaning a pool or creek. And it's first recorded around 1190 as Liverpool. According to the Cambridge Dictionary of English Place Names, the origin reference was to a pool or tidal creek now filled up into which two streams drained. 
The place ap- appeared as Leopold in a, re- a legal record in 1418. Um, may also refer to Liverpool. Other origins of the name have been suggested, including Elverpool, a reference to the large number of eels in the Mersey, while another such suggestion is a derivation of the Welsh Liverpool, apparently meaning expanse or confluence at the pool. And the adjective Liverpudlian is uh, first recorded in 1833, which is, if you're from Liverpool, you are a Liverpudlian. Liverpool is, so that's kind of the name. So pretty much it means muddy water or uh, muddy creek. Um, And Liverpool is on the Mersey River. And it is located in the kind of northwestern coast of England. I didn't realize how close it is to the Wales border. Uh, You can get to Wales in about an hour um, from Liverpool, um, the kind of the northern tip of of Wales. And uh, it's part of the Merseyside borough, hence the Merseyside uh, derby between Liverpool and Everton uh, when they play each other. That's what it's called. It's a little bit smaller than Boston as far as uh, its size. It's got about 400,000 people um, as of last year. And the wider district is the fifth highest population in the UK with 2.2 million people, um, which also kind of surprised me. I, I always think of Liverpool and that area being maybe the next biggest uh, city after London. But yeah, I guess, I guess that's not the case. Maybe, maybe the most the second most famous. I mean, Manchester's up there. Yeah. Yeah. And Liverpool just has, uh, you know, a lot of you got the Beatles and um, sure. kind of just the the history of of uh, shipping and, and industry up there. Uh, so it's extremely old as a city. Uh, it became a borough in 1207. So it just uh, celebrated its 800th birthday. Um, and it was named a city in 1880. And in England, for a city to become a city, it has to be named such by a monarch in the United Kingdom. So I believe Edward VII uh, was the king in 1880 and decided that Liverpool was a city. So that's the, that's kind of the... <laughs> the king or queen's job is to decide if a city can be a city. Um, so Liverpool during the Industrial Revolution kind of boomed as a major international port. Um, merchants imported, exported, you know, a lot of metals and, and goods all over the world um, came out of Liverpool. However, interestingly enough, and I feel like there's got to be a book about this somewhere. It was also highly involved in the uh, Atlantic slave trade. Um and Liverpool was coined a pro-Confederacy city during the Civil War. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was a it was it was also a place that that was driven by the slave economy, um, which I had no idea was the case. Uh, the city also grew just because a ton of Irish people came over in the 1840s due to the potato famine. Um, it was also just a huge port of departure for English and Irish immigrants who were mainly heading to the United States and. Uh, probably Australia as well and Canada. Um, It is the last, it was the port of registry for the Titanic and for the Lusitania, which uh, two ships that were sunk, one by an iceberg and one by a German U-boat. The Lusitania sinking, um, many believe in 1915, was what kind of brought the U.S. into World War I. Um, The Queen Mary and the Olympic were two other huge steam liners that were uh, registered in Liverpool and they are still they are still floating and the Queen Mary is uh, probably one of the more famous ocean liners in the world 
Liverpool had the oldest black community in the United Kingdom, which I guess makes sense when you think about the slave trade. Um, probably some some escaped slaves or when it all kind of came to an end in the 18, uh, 1860s, um, they just ended up settling in Liverpool. Um, and it also has the oldest, according to Wikipedia, the oldest Chinese community in Europe. Um, so it was definitely a city that had a lot of transient um, community members just because of because of the shipping industry. Um, if you're from Liverpool, you're called a Liverpudlian, like I said, or a Scouser. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Yeah. So if you're a Scouser, you are from Liverpool, and it is a reference to Scouse, which is a popular beef or lamb stew that was eaten by sailors in the region. Um, I always thought it was more of a derogatory phrase, and I... I don't get the sense that it is. Um, maybe it was in the past, but it's definitely a point of kind of pride. So that's a little bit about Liverpool. Uh, and then, so they play at Goodison Park. And I don't know if you knew this, Both, but they actually started playing in Stanley Park, which is um, which is the uh, uh, kind of a city park that separates Anfield Road, where Liverpool plays, and Goodison Park. But Everton were the first tenants of Anfield Road. Really? Yes. So oh. they moved. They moved in when it was built, um, and the rent slowly ticked up and got uh, too high um, because they were not owners of the stadium, and they decided to move out, um, which is similar to Leeds. Which is similar to not Leeds. It was the Wednesday. It was the Sheffield teams. Yeah, I feel like the two Sheffield teams, if I remember correctly, Wednesday moved out of um, of their stadium, and and Sheffield United uh, was created to fill to fill the stadium. Bramall Lane, because they had it. Bramall Lane, right? Um, so they moved to Goodison Park in 1892. So Goodison Park is another old as hell stadium, um, and it has been home to Everton ever since 1892. They've got 39,000 seats in it now. Um, they could fit a whole lot more when you just had to stand. Um, it is believed to have hosted the highest number of top flight matches in England um, in club, in league, league table matches um, because Everton in its history has only been out of the top flight. Guess how many years? Uh, I actually came across this myself in my own research. Uh, but I don't know the exact number, but it's it's like maybe three or two, four four years, and three of those came in a row in the fifties. Okay, wow, yeah. Um, so Impressive. they yeah they have been in the top flight since nineteen fifty five, and they they've only spent four years out of top flight. So they've Goodison Park claims it has, and I think it's a pretty fair claim has had the most top flight matches, um, and Acid Villa is the second, um, and they've had they've played. 12 or at least eight fewer seasons in the top flight than uh, than Everton has. So Everton's got a pretty good lead on that. Um, just a, a little interesting fact. This We've talked about the cop in at Anfield and how that, that stand is just a generic name for any sort of terraced one level um, of a stadium in England, typically. So that guy who named it the cop is Ernest Edwards, and he, he was a Liverpool journalist, he also named a stand at Goodison Park. 
He wrote, quote, the building as one looks at it suggests the side of Mauritania at once. And I read that quote and I had no idea the, what Mauritania meant. Um, Mauritania was an ocean liner built in Liverpool in 1906. Um, and so the stand he was referring to is sometimes referred to as the Mauritania stand. It didn't stick as well as the cop did at Anfield. But this guy, Ernest Edwards, is going around looking at stadiums and naming, naming stands, <laughs> which, I thought was, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. There are si- still signs of damage from a 1940 World War II bombing um, on the uh, Gladys Street stand, spelled G-W-L-A-D-Y-S. Um, Goodison Park hosted five World Cup games in 1966, including a semifinal between West Germany, Germany and the Soviet Union which is an amazing game to wrap your head around as we talk in 2019. Um, And West Germany won that game 2-1 and then went on to lose to England in the final. Eusebio played in that World Cup. He scored nine goals in that World Cup and won the Golden Boot. And he scored six of those goals in Goodison Park. And he said, Goodison Park is for me the best stadium in my life which I thought was a cool quote. So Eusebio loves Goodison Park. I'm not sure if he ever, I don't think he ever played there um, in his club football. So it was just, just for Portugal in 1966. Highly underrated um, international soccer figure. I think I, he just gets overshadowed by Pele. Yeah. I mean, this guy's, you know, he's, he's a black athlete who broke barriers um, and just kind of just set records. I think maybe the fact that like Brazil is kind of this like icon in, in, in the soccer world that Eusebio didn't get his recognition. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's a big time name. Uh, his passing, uh, a few years ago now really sent shockwaves through Europe. Um, just saying, wow, this guy really was kind of ahead of his time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So then the last little nugget about Goodison Park that I I found interesting is there is a church that is built almost into the corner uh, of the stadium. So if you're looking at kind of an overhead of the stadium in one of the corners, it's almost kind of cut out to fit this church that the stadium was built around. Um, and over time, this church called St. Luke's has kind of built out a little bit. So they are almost, they're almost touching one another. And because of that, Everton can't play early Sunday kickoffs, um, out of respect for the church services that would be going on, you know, immediately next door. Um, and the church has become synonymous with the football club, and uh, even former Everton players have had their funeral services there. Um, Brian Harris being one that was mentioned um, in Wikipedia. So it, it, now I, I watched the when I watched the documentary last night, and they did this kind of flyover. It, it was the first time I really realized, like, oh, that church is is just basically in the stadium. Um, so something to kind of check out when when uh, when they do an overhead of Goodison Park on a on a Saturday or Sunday um, on NBC Sports. Um, so the crest of Everton has um, a little bit of history. If I asked you just 
Can you picture the crest in your head, Bob? I can. You can. can. So what do you see when you picture it? Well, it's, it's, first of all, it's blue and white. And the white's kind of like a, like a soft, subtle, um, design that like, looks like cursive almost. Yep. Um, can you see the, yep, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Like I'm imagining the crest on the shirt and then like it's blue and white. And then there's this weird building. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Building house. And then like a lot of crests that are in the Premier League, there's some kind of Latin. Yep. Latin, uh, saying, um, I don't know. I don't remember what it was. That's amazing though. So the building is kind of what stuck out to me when I, when I was just looking this all up. So this guy named Theo Kelly in 1937 wanted to make a necktie for the club and decided that to do so they needed a crest. So he went away and, and designed one over the next few months and that little building um, it is. It almost kind of looks like a hut. It's round all the way. It's kind of a round base, and then a like a triangular top. Um, and it's called a Bridewell. Is the official name of of what that building is called? And it was. It's also in Everton, known as the Everton Lockup, and it is where they would ha- they would put uh, drunks and disorderlies to stay <laughs> to stay overnight before going to see a magistrate the next morning. Um, so this, this specific one is in Everton. And, uh, and this, so this guy, it's, it's kind of a, an iconic piece of architecture in, in Everton. And so he decided that that would be on the crest along with the Latin, which is uh, nil, nil city nisi optimum, which is nothing but the best is good enough. And also two laurel wreaths, which are the emblems, um, of of winners don't rest on your laurels being a a kind of famous turn of phrase and if you if you win the boston marathon um you are given a laurel wreath uh at the end um kind of as a nod to the original marathon in greece so that's what's on there but the that everton lockup i thought it was funny that like they've got this little like overnight drunk drunk jail um on their crest Uh, so anyways, that was, that was funny. Uh, and then the nickname, they are called the toffees. And so there's a couple different reasons why people think they're called the toffees, um, near the Everton lockup, which is on their crest. There's a store called mother Norbit's, which sold toffee, um, including the Everton mint, which is a, uh, black and white striped, um, piece of candy, hard candy. And, uh, this also ties in with the tradition of the toffee lady, um, which I'll mention in a bit because I've got a little quote. Um, and then the other th- the other theory was that there's another toffee shop called Ye Ancient Everton Toffee House, uh, which is in nearby Village Street, um, and that was run by Ma Bushel. Uh, and the toffee house was located near the Queen's Head Hotel, um, which held a lot of club meetings early on. So those are kind of the two reasons people think it's called the toffees. And this lady, uh, this mother Norbit, and the toffee lady, she had, I guess, a good-looking daughter. And so toffee, uh, toffeeweb.com had this quote. Not to be outdone by the inventive Mrs. Noblets, old Ma Bushel pulled a master stroke of marketing acumen. She gained permission from the leaders of the club to distribute her, to- her Everton toffees to the crowd inside the ground as they waited patiently for kickoff. Her beautiful young granddaughter, uh, Jemima Bushel, 
was persuaded to perform this honorable task. She dressed in her best finery and donned a broad hat before carrying around her basket laden with individual wrapped Everton toffees. So that is where that name um, comes from in some in some way or another. But that's a bit of the folklore behind uh, that name, the Toffees. Wow. Yeah. All right. So now the club. Um, the club was formed in 1878. It was called the St. Domingo Football Club. Uh, it was made so the congregation could play football um, and cricket, which is which is a trend that we've we've kind of seen in these clubs that started um, in this kind of chunk of the 1800s. And then in 1879, it was renamed Everton Football Club because people outside the St. Domingo community wanted to play too. So Everton was named Everton in 1879. Um, it was a founding member of the Football Association in 1888. Um, between their founding and World War One, the club won the league in 1981 and the FA Cup in 1906. And they were also the champs in 1915, right before the uh, World War One broke out. And ironically enough, they were also champs when World War Two broke out. So they're def- they're defending seasons were interrupted by the two world wars. Um, the post-war Everton um, didn't really re- return to any sort of prominence until 1927, which is about you know seven or eight years after World War I ended and they could actually start the league again. Um, they signed a fellow named Dixie Dean, which is just a, an incredible name, from Tranmere Rovers. Dean is the Goal-scoring record holder for a single Premier League year. He scored 60 goals in 39 matches during the 1927-28 season. And that is still a record. And I'm not sure who's in second. Um, I didn't think to look it up until just now. Uh, They won the league that year in 28, uh, but then they were relegated in 1931. So that's their first year out of top flight football was 1931. And they immediately were promoted in 1932. And then in 1933, they were league champs again. So they were relegated, promoted, and then champs um, in three straight years, which is a crazy roller coaster run if you're a fan of any sort of team, and which would never happen nowadays. Um, they were also they also won the FA Cup in 1933. Um, 1939, they were champs again. And like I said, the war interrupted the league after that. Um, following World War II, the team kind of hit its lowest point. Uh, they spent three straight seasons in the second division from 1951 to 1954. Uh, and then they earned promotion and they have been in the top flight of English soccer ever since, which is 65 straight years um, in top flight football. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yes, they have they have uh, they have flirted with relegation. Um, particularly one year they actually did not get relegated based on goal differential, which is, um, but it's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's gotten it close for sure. And, uh, and Bolton went down. Um, amazing that that's how they decide it in the end. Um, anyways, the 1960s were pretty good to Everton. They were league champs in 62 and also in 70, They won the FA Cup in 1966, which was just a great year for English soccer. Um, So they will kind of forever be known as a team that won the FA Cup when England won the World Cup. 
And they were the first English club to qualify for European competition um, for five straight seasons. So from 62 to 67, they played in Europe, um, didn't win anything, but they were they were competing in Europe every year, which is uh, which is pretty important for these clubs. The 70s were not great. Uh, they kind of just re- they just were in the middle of the table, close to the bottom of the table. Um, no real deep runs in cups, nothing too impressive. And then in the 1980s were the were the real glory years. Um, I, I I don't know if you know any Everton fans. I know I know one, and he is uh, a fair bit older than I am. Um, and he I remember I watched the 1995 FA Cup final with him. He is the son of my grand of my godparents. Okay, and I just didn't really understand why the heck he was an Everton fan. And then after. Um, he grew up in Ireland and after reading about what the eighties were like for Everton, I completely understand why there's, why anybody who is kind of in their late forties to early sixties would have adopted this team, um, as their favorite team. Cause they were, they were a, an outstanding team, um, both in England and in Europe. Um, so it kind of just listening, reading this and watching, um, Howard's way it it kind of all clicked in for me like holy cow this this club was was something else in the in the 80s so in 1981 Howard Kendall uh took over as the manager and they kind of had a a few years of just getting their feet under them um if you ever have time to watch Howard's way you can kind of they're they're slowly building this team and all the players that they picked up from Andy Gray, who I'm sure you you know, both maybe from commentary and FIFA. FIFA, <laughs> right? Just that like Always. great Scottish accent. Right. Um, Peter Reed, who played in the midfield um, for England, um, uh, Southall as their goalie. Uh, Kevin Sheedy, who was a, an Irish international, uh, who was an outstanding player. Um, and just kind of this, they just were slowly bringing guys in. And in 1984, it all paid off. They won the FA Cup. Then they won the league in 85. Um, so they won the FA Cup in 84. And then they won the league in 85 and 87. Um, and they also won the Cup Winners' Cup, which is pretty much the uh, Champions League equivalent um, of, of that time period in 1985. Uh, so that's a that's a pretty good stretch of of uh, of winning in the span of four years, uh, and they just missed winning the treble in 1985. So they won, they won the league. They went out. They went to um, I think they played in Rotterdam. They played the they played the Cup Winners Cup final um, against uh, Rapid Vienna and just kind of demolished them. and uh, And that game was on May 15th. Then they hopped in a plane and were celebrating, and they played the FA Cup final against Manchester United on May 18th. Wow. So they had three days between winning a Cup Winners Cup and then playing in the FA Cup, and they lost uh, 1-0. And there's a, there's a, kind of an interesting part in the in the documentary where there there's a there there's kind of folklore that a lot of them partied too hard after winning the cup winners cup and they just didn't have their legs under them and, uh, and lost to a United team that was not quite as good, um, Hmm. as they were, um, which was interesting. They also talked really highly about not the final 
of the Cup Winners' Cup, but they played Bayern Munich in the semifinal. And in the first leg went to Munich and got a 0-0 tie. And then Goodison Park was host to the second leg. And uh, and they had they brought a few of the guys out on the on the field and interviewed them and just had them talk about that night and each of them to a man who had played in World Cup matches and other huge games with Everton and other clubs. They each said if they could if they could pick one game from their career to live out again, it would have been that three one win over Bayern Munich um, at Goodison Park. They said they had never experienced anything anything like it um, as far as a match. So. That uh, that that was that was the glory years for Everton. That stretch of time, uh, and then something really disastrous happened to Everton by way of Liverpool and another stadium disaster. So last week we talked about uh, the Hillsborough disaster, and um, which which was a Liverpool and Nottingham Forest FA Cup semifinal game where. Uh, 96 people lost their lives and were crushed to death um, because of overcrowding and and uh, and some people blame the Liverpool fans and there's a whole thing. So 1986, are you did you have you heard of the Hazel Stadium disaster? No. So this one kind of crushed Everton and really made the second half of the 80s a very different experience than it should have been for this club. And it's really unfortunate. So the Hayes Hill Stadium disaster happened in the 1986 Cup Winners' Cup final. Everton was playing uh, Juventus in Belgium at the Hayes Hill Stadium in Belgium. And about an hour before the game kicked off, there was a, a, a kind of a fight broke out between the Liverpool fans and the Juventus fans. Um, and as, I, as, as I've seen, at least in stadiums, you know, it, they're kind of separated out so that the, the two fan bases aren't really a, anywhere close to one another. So apparently Liverpool fans uh, kind of ran at the Juventus fans. Some people blame the Italian fans for kind of starting it, quote unquote. Um, eyewitnesses uh, say this is a false theory and the, that the Liverpool fans and kind of the hooliganism of English soccer uh, was kind of at the height at this point. Um because the Italian fans were being run at by the Liverpool fans, they actually had to climb a retaining wall, which then collapsed. Um, 39 people in the, in the whole thing were killed, um, most of them Juventus fans, and 600 more were injured. Um, the wall collapsing actually saved lives because it allowed the Juventus fans to get out of the area that they were kind of trapped in um, within the stadium. So that happened in 1986, and there was a whole big... Um, they played the game anyway. This all happened an hour before the game, and they played the game anyways. Um, Juventus <laughs> won one nothing, which is amazing that they actually played the game. Um, in the aftermath, 14 Liverpool fans, along with some top officials and the police captain, were found guilty of manslaughter. Um, so what does this mean for Everton? Every single English club was banned from European competition from 1986 to 1991. And when this was announced, the time frame was indefinite. So there was no certainty around when English teams would be allowed back into the Cup Winners' Cup um, or the UEFA Cup or any of the other kind of international or the or any of the other European championships. So Everton is feeling like they are on top of the world and then suddenly 
they cannot play in any English, uh, in any European matches, and it kind of ruins their entire um, their momentum. And their manager uh, leaves. So uh, Howard Kendall, who had kind of led them all the way here, left in 1987 for Athletic Bilbao, and uh, and and nothing really uh, outstanding happened for Everton between the Hazel disaster and uh, 1995 when they beat United in the in the FA Cup final, one nothing. Um, a little bit of redemption for the for the loss a decade earlier. Um. Kendall, so Kendall left in 87 and then he returned in 1990, uh, but the club struggled. Um, they managed to stick around and they were in the Premier League in 92, so they were founding members of that. Um, Joe Royal came along in 1995 and saved them from relegation and won an FA Cup. Um, Kendall returned for a third time in 97. So Howard Kendall managed them in, in eight, from 81 to 97 and then from 90 to around 92 and then in 97 he came along and couldn't really couldn't really do anything again um they avoided relegation on goal differential this during the 97 season uh Walter Smith took over in 1998 nothing really happened for 3 years and then in 02 um David Moyes took over and this is kind of when Everton at least found some footing in English soccer and also in European soccer. Moyes was the manager for 10 years. Um, he was the man who sold Wayne Rooney to Manchester United. And I'm going to ask you, Boff, do you know how much Wayne Rooney was sold for in 2004? Um, like $25 million, $21 million? That's a good guess. It was £28 million. Pounds. £28 million, pounds, yeah. Um, and just like thinking about 15 years later what yeah. a player like Wayne Rooney would would get in uh in a transfer is, is is amazing at least 85 yeah at least um in 04 they finished 4th which got them in the Champions League but they didn't really uh make any noise at all um Moyes broke the transfer record 4 times while he was at Everton this is another thing that shocked me in 2005 he signed James Beatty for 6 million pounds which was the record then he signed Andy Johnson for 8.6 million pounds. Then he signed Yakubu for 11 million pounds in 2007. And finally, Marijuana Fellaini, he signed for 15 million pounds in 2008 and famously brought him to United when he uh, when he left when he left Everton. Uh, he when he left in 2012, Martinez was really the first the next manager of any sort of consequence who came along. Um, he had won the FA Cup with Wigan in 13. It was kind of a hot shot. He's now the manager of Belgium and didn't really get his, didn't, couldn't really get much going. Um, and that's kind of where I think I'm going to leave it with you. It's around 2013, 2016. I don't know if you've got some David Moy stuff, but that's what I've got on, on Everton. Kind of just a really fascinating, decorated, frustrating, tragic, uh, history uh yeah um that's a great spot to, to kind of um drop it and I'll, I'll pick it up um i think for me the only thing that i'll mention really about david Moyes is is that that's kind of the everton that i remember growing up watching as a kid um the everton that um i don't know produced these kind of not quite household names but names that um 
a guy on the edge of being a, a, a soccer junkie would, would remember and pick up. Like Aiden McGeady, uh, the guy that's like famous for his McGeady spin move. Um, like, like a Phil Neville growing up, seeing how the two Neville brothers were playing on, on different teams and saying, oh, wow, like this is kind of just a, a different, a different um, wrinkle in, in soccer. Um, and yeah, so David Moyes like took this Everton club and really gave them an appropriate argument to, to the name School of Science. Uh, they're known in like the football community as a, a I don't know, an, an academy that, that produces from what they have and, and really does the most to make the most of, of the resources. Um, and yeah, I, I pick up, really I pick up uh, Everton in my research, in my part, uh, when a man named Farhad Moshiri, and I apologize if that's butchering the pronunciation, but Farhad Moshiri is um, another addition, another flavor of, <laughs> money coming in, money coming in, and being uh, and being a, a big kind of influencer in the tra- trajectory and direction of a club um, as they kind of look at the next five or ten years. Um, but a little bit about this man um, before I kind of go into his 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 modern day project. So Mashiri was first on the board or as a kind of like a, a big time stakeholder at um, a club named Arsenal. And he's good friends slash business partners with um, Alisher Usmanov, who currently is the Arsenal um, you know, majority holder, um, one of the, the majority holders. And so he's got about maybe, I think he's got like 15% stake, uh, stakes of Arsenal um, at around 2015, 2016. And in i don't know a kind of a swing of interest he looks at everton and sees that he can afford to become something around 48 to 49 percent uh stakeholder at everton so before he does that though he has to sell his shares to his friend uh usmanov at arsenal uh because of some kind of league rule where nobody who owns more than 10 percent of a club can own any other part of the club then has to kind of prevent um i don't know a, a kind of a a conflict of interests and kind of prevent maybe monopoly in in the football world yeah well collusion so, as well so he sells his 15 percent um to, to leave arsenal and goes to everton i don't really have a, the exact number of what he contributed in, in his purchase to Everton. Um, but I do know that right when he began, um, he just injected tons of his own funds by way of uh, an interest-free loan. So his first move, uh, literally, like the second he finishes tying his tie, is to fire uh, Martinez from, from his post. And part of the first injection of money, so I think he invested $80 million of his own funds. Part of that was to clear debt and take Everton out of any kind of financial problems that they had or financial corners that, that they were booked into. And then another part of that 80 million was to just pay off uh, Martinez's severance pay. Um, he, for some reason, he just didn't like him and kind of wanted to take a, a club, the club in a direction that was just separate from what Martinez was doing. And here is 
kind of a point uh, that we've kind of grown to find a pattern in. And it's this notion and idea of the promised land. And we looked at Sheffield Wednesday and we looked at um, different clubs kind of on the lower end of the spectrum and saw that the promised land was the Premier League. If we can just get into the Premier League, all of our problems will go away. We'll, we'll have achieved our goals, we'll have achieved our, our ambitions, and we'll find sustainability and find a way to kind of do more than stay afloat, but rather be that dream club. For a team like Everton, their promised land was the Champions League. And so Moshiri comes in and says, I want to be a Champions League team again. I want to be um, at that caliber of, of European football. And so what does he do? He invests another, over the next few years, he invests $450 million. And I'm going to get around to kind of financial fair play and get around to <laughs> you know, uh, how possible or how that is possible to invest that much money. Um, but over the next few years, from 2016 to, to now, so that's just shy of four years, maybe three and a half, um, he's got this club spending $450 million. And what you see here is a little bit of a shift in philosophy and transfer policy. Everton has signed players on permanent deals, but they've also found a way to um, cut some corners a little bit on on that like hefty price price tag. So you mentioned, you know, Wayne Rooney um, in in today's market would cost. Sorry, when he was bought by Manchester United, would cost somewhere around eighty five million, maybe even north of one hundred and ten. Right. For that kind of young talent, or that talent that's just that's just maybe going to break through the ranks. Yep. Um, Everton looks at now all these kind of big big clubs. They look at a Chelsea. They look at a they look at a Barcelona. Um, they look at a Monaco. They look at all these clubs that have almost a surplus of talent and pick off that guy that's just right for a loan move and. And so on my list of players that, that, that they brought in over, over the, the years of, of Mashiri, let's see this. So he brings in Lukaku, uh, who was at Chelsea. He brings in uh, De La Feu, Gerard De La Feu, who was at Barcelona. He brings in Traore, who was at Monaco. And he brings in Gareth Barry, who was at City. Um, across the board of those four players, you're looking at an average of about – 15 to 16 million dollar price tag of each player yep um and that kind of becomes their their player profile or their player kind of model we want to we want this price tag we want the just good enough to to be somebody of value but not good enough where we're going to break the bank and and lose and lose some serious money on a potential risk uh, you fast forward a year and then you're looking at Aaron Lennon from Spurs for 13 and you're looking at Christian Atsu from Chelsea for six. Christian Atsu at the time was uh, a hot prospect coming out of FC Porto. Um, I only know that because I'm a, a low-key Porto fan. Um, but yes, so 16-17, he brings in uh, Enner Valencia for 11, uh, $11 million market value. The next the next season he brings in uh, Elakim Mangala for seventeen. Um, the next year you've got Andre Gomez and Kurt Zuma um, from Barcelona and Chelsea respectively, each for seventeen. And then this current year he's got Sidibe from Monaco for nineteen. So again, this this 
idea that we can we can do and work with a lot of of the talent um, for kind of a a cut price deal. Bring in a team of potentially very very good players and see what we can do with them on loans instead of going out and trying to spend 50 60 million dollars with uh you know kind of that, that big name transfer and so you think that this is you know kind of a, a smart and cheap way to, to to get around transfers and all that and you think oh wow they're being really financially uh frugal and responsible and and sound um but this methodology of, of going about the market has taken them to top four clubs in the English Premier League in terms of spending. Um, top four only behind City at number one, United at number two, Arsenal at number three, and Everton at number four. Wow. Yeah. Um, so so uh, the current, and again, I'll get this in, in a little bit, but the current um, criticism by fans and, and, and pundits alike is that they've spent so much money but have done nothing with that money. They don't have any modern-day triumphs or achievements that they can kind of hang their hat on and say, yeah, like how we spend our money and, and our, our model is is um, proof that, that we're doing it the right way. So uh, can I ask you a question about loans? Sure. So when a team brings a player on for a loan, what is what is the price or what's the financial burden on the team that brings the player in? It depends. It depends. It depends. Okay. Um, so, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to bring this up, but it is kind of funny. Um, Alexi Sanchez uh, was at United for a long time. He didn't play. Yep. Right. And he couldn't, he couldn't get into the <laughs> roster and couldn't get into the lineup and all that. And so these guys at United were so fed up with him and so just sick of him. They said, you know what? Hey, if any club wants to take him, we'll pay for part of his wages. Just take him on on a free on a free loan, right? Um, just to get him out. And so I believe United are still paying all, if not a majority, part of his wages while Sanchez is off in Italy. Um, some clubs uh, say, "Hey, you know, give us." a $10 million release clause and that's the cash that we'll keep. And then you can have him and take care of his wages for the year. Um, okay. so it, it's kind of a mix of, of math. Uh, some, some clubs have to pay a, a, a loan fee. Some clubs only have to take care of the players wages. Some clubs are almost pre, pretty much being paid to take this player yep. um, for whatever reason. Right. Okay. Um, and then, and then some clubs even agree to, you know, a, a further transfer down the line or agree to saying if you want to keep him, the the buyback or the, the buyout clause is this at the end of the year. Yep. Um, but yeah, so loans, I don't know, like loans get me to think of what we as American sports do in terms of trading and like uh, draft selections. I wonder what, what, European soccer would look like if we could trade, if we could trade players straight up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, like, I'll give you Granite Xhaka and Mustafi if you give me a water bottle and, and jacket. <laughs> <laughs> like, what would that look like? Well, you, uh, right now, United and Real, not to get to like too far down the rabbit hole, but United and Real Madrid, I think, are talking about that for Pogba and potentially Bale and... Uh, right. And 
and Hamas as well. So anyways, I just I, I've always I knew there were free loans, but I wasn't sure what kind of financial burden Everton could be taking on if they're if they're if they're bringing some of these guys in trying to spark some sort of comp- competitive advantage. But it's not it's clearly not uh, it's not doing the trick. Right. I mean, I think the the biggest burden that they would be bringing in is is the wages. Um, they they have to lure the player out of trying to cut it at their dream club and say, hey, look, like you're not getting playing time and you're, you know, um, you're not getting paid that much. So here's a better option. Yeah. That's kind of their like negotiation tactic. Um, but yeah, so all the all the loans, all the wages taken on, all the investments in in terms of renovating uh, their training facilities and their stadium, um, all funded by uh, what seems like just one man, uh, Moshiri. But I, I dug a little bit further into this kind of uh, haystack of of money and and investments, and I found. Um, the name again uh, that popped up, and it was Usmanov. So Alisher Usmanov pops up again. I thought I thought we were done with Arsenal. I thought we were done with this this man um, after the initial bit of research. But I found out that Everton is heavily sponsored by Usmanov's like mining company or metal metal mining company, uh, and it's it's called USM, and it's a mining company run by Usmanov in Russia. Right, so I mean, if there's <laughs> a trend of money coming into the Premier League from from different countries, you know, there's definitely a, a subcategory of Russian money. Yep. And and as Everton's, you know, pretty much benefactor, this company is funding everything. Uh, so you ask how how is this possible? How can you spend 450 million um, and, and not and not violate the financial financial fair play rules? So. I believe down in the championship, the 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 fair play limit was thirty nine million. Hey, you can't you can't exceed thirty nine million in, in losses yep. over three years. Yep. Uh, if you do, you face sanctions. And so, you know, we saw Chancery um, panic and say, "All right, uh, I'm going to buy my own stadium and try to get <laughs> get out of that uh, that pickle um, with a very half baked idea." Um, USM Mining. Uh, and Everton have a little bit higher ceiling, so they they have only 105 million total losses allowed over three years, um, or else they face financial fair play sanctions. So they've got to somehow prove that there's no backdoor uh, kind of show or display of conflicting interests that this man who's man off is not running Arsenal and running Everton at the same time. Right. Um, and so Usmanov um, and Moshiri are right now in the midst of a lot of kind of legal attempts to deflect any uh, any suspicion or fishiness that, that might suggest uh, there's this monopoly forming between them. Um, and yeah, there's it's not quite as dire and serious as you know, Chen series kind of situation down in the championship, but it is, it is up there and saying like, wow, um, everything could be, could be punished pretty, pretty badly if, if it's found out and you look at them and you say, okay, like maybe, I don't know, ease off a little bit on, on the spending and, and kind of just check to see where you're at before you go forward to the next, to the next, uh, phase. But phase two or three of this 
Moshiri plan to the Champions League um, sees us right now in this week, in this day of kind of current events um, with Carlo Ancelotti being linked to the club. Ancelotti might be one of the biggest names in terms of managers in, in the football world. This man has won three Champions Leagues and has been everywhere. And he just got fired by... Napoli. By Napoli, okay. And you look at Champions League and you're... Sorry, at, at Carlo Ancelotti and you're saying, I mean, this guy's going to take on Everton and they, they could be... They could be the spark that you need to to bring that, you know, center of focus into Liverpool again. I mean, you were talking about Liverpool in the 80s and how Everton was successful, you know, and, and, and winning big time, um, winning big time. And then Liverpool, I remember, um, became that team too. Um, and they were a powerhouse in the 80s as well. Yep. And I'm thinking like, wow, you've got Klopp here, you know, doing his thing at Anfield and you've got a potential takeover um, by Ancelotti and, and a whole new project. Ancelotti in his negotiations is pretty much demanding that he has full power um, of of the club and of the wallet. So we'll see what happens and, and we'll see what kind of transpires as the weeks go on. But talks are pretty close to being finalized. And before I go into kind of Everton's new stadium project, a little bit more about this man, Usmanov, who I thought, again, we were done with Arsenal. but we're, <laughs> And I, Sean, I promise you, I'm not trying to make this all about Arsenal, but <laughs> some things are pretty fishy. One is that it is coming out from a few sources online that Ancelotti has had lunch and talks with Usmanov ahead of signing for uh, Everton. And you're saying, all right, well, of course, like this guy you know, is kind of a majority shareholder, sorry, a majority benefactor through his company. And like, why, why not? But at the current time of this recording, Arsenal are also in need of a manager. Yeah, right. And that- like, why, why would you take Arteta if, if you've got Ancelotti right in front of you eating, eating lunch? Mm-hmm. So a little bit fishy, a little bit, um, kind of a uh, suspect uh, if, if you're kind of thinking about, you know, the suspicions of um, conflicting interests. But anyway, I, I digress. I'm sorry. I, I just had to get it in there. I was just like, no, that's this important because that's, that's, it's, that's yeah. very timely to what's going on as we are recording this because both, both those clubs are in desperate need of a manager. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, Arteta is great, but Ancelotti. So, and then, so just, to pivot from that point, um, the next big project that they're planning is to build this new stadium for Everton. So they, they were thinking of the thinking of leaving Goodison Park just because it's maybe at the last end or last tail end of, of its of its um, service. Uh, they want to become the Champions League team. They want to become somebody that has a, a new feel to it. So I think part of it, that thinking is that, hey, look, Goodison Park served us just fine, but now we're in a new era, we're in a new chapter. And I looked up their projects, and, I mean, the video designs of of what would be called Bramley Moore Dock, um, the video stadium designs are ridiculous. It looks futuristic. Like, this is a venue I'm looking at right now, like, wow, this could easily host a knockout round game in the World Cup. Like this thing is top of the line. And 
the stadium will cost 300 and 300 million pounds if it if it goes through and if, if it gets passed huh yeah i'm looking at it right now that's uh they have an hour-long presentation on youtube if people want to if, if you want to watch an hour-long kind of video presentation yeah. about the whole the whole thing yeah it is it, it is it look i mean look for me i'll always be the guy that you know prefers concrete slabs and and eating uh sunflower seeds at, at a stadium but this thing looks nice um so you're looking at this club now and you're looking at how they're potentially bringing in uh ancelotti and potentially giving him full reign of of the wallet and then you're looking at their stadium designs and then you look at those two things in light of already having spent 450 million uh uh, pounds. If my math, and I'm I'm not a math guy, I never taught math. I taught Spanish. But if my math is somewhat correct, you're gonna touch pretty close to one billion spent for a club that is pretty much has been in like top ten. Um, in, right. In, That's in sixteenth place in the in the league right now. Right. So sixteenth place in the league, and historically, in a recent history, a top ten at best um and that's just scary that a club like Everton has to spend about a billion dollars just to stay afloat and just kind of stay relevant when you look at i'd say the top six the top eight in the premier league um i I don't know i don't know how i feel about that really yeah well it's like you got to keep up with the joneses and when we when we've looked at teams on the lower end of the the spending like they have their own ways that they're trying to spend money and keep up and they are on the smaller scale and Everton wants to be in that in that window of top four top six and if you look at those clubs the only one who's kind of doing it without a I guess United I, I would even say United's not doing it right now is Liverpool right I mean City built a new stadium um, Chelsea's got an old stadium, but like they, they've got—I don't know—I just I think that's they're looking around and, and trying to figure out how do they drum up excitement and how do they get people to want to come play in Liverpool for Everton, not for Liverpool. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a case of—it's definitely a case of um, you know someone coming in and seeing a seeing a shiny object across the street and and not staying at your place um, for sure. I, I think, yeah, I, I think. For me, that that takes me to the end of my research and takes me to the end of, of my coverage on Everton. But I do want to open up a a question to you and and kind of consider if you're if you're Ancelotti, would you say yes to, to this project? Sixteenth place, right? And let's say at best, because of financial fair play rules and 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 definitely you know, being at risk of, of being, of being punished for that. Um, so maybe you get at most 180 million, uh, over the next two, two transfer windows. Like, do you say yes to this project? Do you, do you go to Everton or are they, are they just doomed? I don't think I, I don't think I take on, I wouldn't take on this project. How old is Enchilati's old too, right? Yeah. He's, I mean, he's up in his, I'd say he's late fifties. Okay. Maybe he's older. 60 yeah 
Yeah, it just I'm looking like looking at the roster. Um they've got a lot of guys who have just like not played as well as they were expected to. Even a guy like Sigurdsson who came from Iceland. Yeah. Um has been a disappointment. They're chasing guys around like Theo Walcott who's I can't believe he's only 30 years old. It feels like he should be 45. Um yeah. You know, it just it doesn't seem like the situation that I would want to I would want to take on. Sure. And it, yeah. like new stadium, new stadium stuff is really tricky. Look what happened to look what happened to Tottenham. Yeah. Or you're kind of in limbo. I know they wouldn't lose Goodison Park. They would just move into a new one. Um, but like all of that financial strife and the pressure to keep up with your with your neighbors um, in Liverpool who I'm imagining will be relevant for another, let's say two years. Okay. Right. Is that a fair, I think Klopp and that group will be good for another two years and then someone will leave or they'll have to sell guys off or the, that front three that they have will, will turn over. Um, so two, maybe three years of being the, the little brother and kind of, swinging and missing um as they have their arm on your forehead um (laughs) i like i i just it's not it's not a it's not something i think is going to end with any sort of real success for ancelotti yeah yeah it it looks it looks dangerous and and i don't know maybe again i'm I'm just bitter but um it's just interesting to to look at a at a club holistically and, and seeing how they've spent and seeing you know if if there are trends or signs that, that point to some prospect of success or or some kind of um you know uh, achievement but yeah that's that's what i got on everton yeah uh, I, I texted you last night just thinking more about this um as i like once Moyes left they've hit this cycle of they've done it now they've they've done it twice where they hired um let's see i gotta i gotta find what i wrote here but it you know so they hire martinez who i think was kind of a splat was it was not kind of he was a splashy signing right kind of a young a young guy who might have been seen as a as a little bit of a a good moise replacement who had been there for 10 years and 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 he did not go well then they sign ronald coman who was not a splashy signing, but a guy who had proven he could be successful with a small club. I mean, Southampton, when Coleman was there, um, maybe it was 2015 or 2016, they were kind of pressing the top four for a good chunk of that season. Right, right. And they sign him, and it doesn't go as well as they hoped, and they, you know, they're in, they're in the relegation zone, and they fire him. And right. David Unsworth, a former player, becomes their interim interim manager. Then they hire Sam Allardyce. Yes, he also I'm just gonna say should be one of those names that we keep a, a counter on. I think I thought he was because I, I was about to say I think we've he's uh, he's definitely Big Sam is is shows up a lot to just fix clubs. So yeah. as they're in the relegation zone, he swo- he swoops in and saves them. Uh, but then he resigns at the end of the year because it really wasn't a match made in heaven. Uh, Allardyce was the perfect uh, solution to getting a club right 
and getting them out of relegation, but he's not the guy who's going to get you into the top six. Right. So then they hire David Silva, another up-and-coming manager that people really liked. Marco Silva, I think. I'm sorry, Marco Silva. David Silva is the... Is the uh, is the player? Um, so they, you know, so Marco Silva shows up, and he just got fired because the team, just like Coleman, was on the edge of the relegation zone. Yeah, and just like David Unsworth, they hire a former player as an interim manager in Duncan Ferguson this time, and now they're looking at like who's the next guy. They've been in this cycle for for four years now. Yeah, and maybe Ancelotti, as as they look at it, is is a guy that is just a known commodity that they might have to fork over some money to, but could get them out of that cycle. Cause that is a dangerous cycle to be in. Yeah. I, I just want to give a quick shout out to Duncan Ferguson. I don't think he's listening to this podcast, but, um, this is a man who I watched the game one time, uh, that he was managing Everton game and it was coming down like cold rain. Absolutely. <laughs> Against United. <laughs> right pounding uh winds going crazy i mean it looked like a scene out of shakespeare's tempest it was it was pretty bad and, and this guy's just in a in a shirt and tie yep just coaching and i'm like i mean like look if you're gonna have some kind of interim manager for a little bit at least have it be this guy yeah this, yep. is, this guy's a real deal he's he i mean he looks like he has for sure passed through sheffield at least three times um in, in terms of his level of just badassness yeah he's great and I, who knows? Maybe he'll be the if they can't get Enchilotti, maybe they just ride him out because he he seems to at least have added a little bit of of spunk to the club. For they've got what twenty twenty two games left. Um, yeah. So I don't um, know. I don't know. But it, it they they are in a, a little bit of a pickle. I mean, they're they're not going to get relegated, but if they finish in the bottom half of the table and are uninspired. Right. Um, I don't know. They right. just they they just don't seem. And I think the fans are frustrated. They haven't won a trophy in twenty five years, which is a long time for a club that is 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 uh, as decorated as they are. Um, I don't know. It's it's uh, they are in limbo, just like all the other ones we've done, because we're looking at teams that aren't in the top six and aren't aren't as. Uh, foundationally solid right now right and i think we've we've started to see all of those different trends popping up whether it's managerial turnover or foreign money or you know a little bit of money laundering (laughs) whatever like financial risks um it's just it like those threads just continue to to weave their way through all of these clubs, whether they're in the middle of the championship or at the bottom of the premier league or like Sheffield United in the top five right now. Right. Um, right. But they all yeah. kind of have that same, they all just have a couple of just those little things in common because they're all desperate and they're all fighting and they don't have a ton of money coming in. Yeah. I, I just, I just, it's crazy. I look at all you know all these kind of storylines that that um, are, that exist, and you're just wondering how soccer just generates so much money, um, and there's so much money in the sport that that uh, I don't know. Pe- people are willing to, to do so much um, for that kind of big you know I don't know jackpot um, in the end, and, and including you know I mean 
you've got Moshiri, uh, who's now at this current moment uh, has loaned two hundred fifty million, no interest, to Everton. Like, what what would push a man to, to do that? Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I I think I think uh, you know we're we're in for a few more episodes where where money comes in and, and says and says hello. Yeah. To, to to the chapters and stories that that are being written by these clubs. Um. But yeah. Yeah. So it's my turn to pick. I, I, we should. I think I got my pick. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna tell you right now what it is. I okay. Hear I wanna. I wanna look at Crystal Palace next week. Crystal Palace. Ooh. Okay. I, okay. A, a London team. We've kind of been up in the Midlands and bouncing around that part of the country. Um. So I thought we should. We can get back to. We can get back to London, and I, I have. I have no. No idea what this club is like. Um, I know they've been around for a very long time. I've always been intrigued by their name. Yeah, and uh, and I just I thought it would be interesting to get back into the into a London team like we had. I think West Ham's the only London-based team we've looked at. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. you're right. Leeds, the Sheffields, um, Wolverhampton. So let's go back to London. Let's look okay. at Crystal Palace. And uh, and we okay. will we'll we'll talk to everyone uh, next maybe maybe not next week because it's we got we've got Christmas and I'm traveling but this might be a, a, in two weeks time we'll take a little bit of extra time to do some research. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so just before I, I sign off, uh, we are currently at one for Steve Bruce <laughs> for Sam Allardyce. Um, and who was the other yeah. one we had? Big Sam, Steve Bruce, uh, St- Steve Bruce, Sam Allardyce. Um, no, who is the one? Who's the one a, who's a Cardiff? Uh, Warnock. Yes, Neil Warnock. Neil Warnock. <laughs> uh, Neil Warnock yes, um, those those three guys. I I mean, like, imagine this, like a, a a dinner, and all three of them are at your dinner. Yeah, like the stories they have. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's it for me, um, Sean. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, thanks, Bob. And we'll be back. Yeah, we'll talk to everyone in a couple of weeks. Enjoy the holidays and uh, and thanks again. Bye, Bob. Bye. Bye.